Are your wiper blades chattering, skipping, or squeaking? Don't let streaks or smearing on your windshield compromise your visibility. When it's time to replace your wiper blades, stop by O'Reilly Auto Parts and see our selection. Our professional parts people will even install your new wiper blades while you wait. Stop by O'Reilly Auto Parts today. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts. Turkey hunt's one of my favorite things. And one of the key tools I use for turkey hunting is the Onyx Hunt Map. I use it incessantly when I'm hunting turkeys. Being able to find a new piece of public or gaining permission on private opens up opportunities for gobblers. Onyx Hunt has a special offer for you this spring. Use the code MEATEATER to receive 20% off your membership at onxmaps.com hunt. You'll find more birds this season. I'm telling you, I rely on Onyx Hunt. When I'm hunting turkeys, it is an invaluable turkey hunting tool. There's nothing like snook hook sets at dawn or catching a tarpon in the moonlight. Find your next fishing trip made easy on fishingbooker.com and experience the magic of the Sunshine State or any other destination on your fishing bucket list. Book a blue water adventure in search of sailfish or go snapper fishing with the kids. With over 6,000 captains and trips to choose from, planning your next one just got a whole lot easier. Download the Fishing Booker app on the Google Play or App Store or visit them online at fishingbooker.com to book your trip today. This is the Meat Eater Podcast coming at you shirtless, severely bug-bitten, and in my case, underwearless. We hunt the Meat Eater Podcast. You can't predict anything. Presented by OnX Hunt, creators of the most comprehensive digital mapping system for hunters. Download the Hunt app from the iTunes or Google Play store. Know where you stand with OnX. Okay, we're joined here today by special guest Carter Smith, Executive Director of Texan Park, Texas Parks and Wildlife Department. Yeah, great to be with y'all. Uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna like ask ask some easy questions to start, but yeah. the first question I have is is not easy. Do you you're aware of how um, how people who don't live in Texas uh, are often baffled by Texas? <laughs> The the, um, the 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 number of um, animals and just it, it's bewildering to people. Yeah, the scale, the diversity. Yeah, a bit of a mythology around all that in there. Yeah, yeah. And you could be driving down the road and there's a zebra standing there. <laughs> it's just we hear. It's that's why it's good to be down here. It's because we hear from so many people. Who, you know, people write in, and we hear from so many people who have they they speak about like people from the northern tier states or whatever, speak about Texas as though they're asking about another country. Yeah, yeah. And so it's good to come down and talk to the official. You, I know you don't probably like to go by the official voice of Texas wildlife. <laughs> yeah, I'm not quite but, that form, formal, Steve. So, yeah, yeah. Well, I'm going to ask you to cut that immediately. <laughs> you grew, uh, you're from here, right? I am, yep, yep. Grew up here, kind of one foot in the city, one foot in the country. Is call, that right? call Austin home, our family ranched and farmed in central and south texas and and so it was kind of the best of both worlds you guys, really. you guys ran a cattle ranch we did yeah cow calf operation and and um my uh really uncle 
took full responsibility for that. And you know, we played a part as, as, as well. Um, it was kind of interesting growing up to see my cousins really gravitate more to the ag side. You know, I was always a lot more interested in, you know, trapping hogs and, you know, catching bullfrogs and oh, that, right? that kind of thing. So, what kind of farming did you guys do? So, so Like to support your cow-calf operation? No, no, that was a separate operation. Uh-huh. And so there was, a, there was just a dry land row crop uh, operation of sorghum and corn. Um, lease that out to a neighbor that had been there forever. Um, and so, and then we had a little cattle operation off on that, off to the side on that place as well. And, uh, and so, you know, and that's really where I discovered the outdoors growing up All my, my friends love to punt and fish and be outside. That was pretty, pretty natural. You know, thankfully I had this blessed childhood where I had places to go and could also take, take friends, but, um, it was a pretty easy assimilation into the outdoors. Not so much for kids today. Did you guys... On your guys' properties, were you guys involved in oil and gas too? There was only gas that's our, activity. That's our other impression of Texas. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, and you know, obviously, you know, you, you look right now what's going on in the Permian, um, and it has dramatically changed the so? energy landscape. Just a huge voluminous oh, amount pro- of production. Oh, the yeah, the proliferation yeah, of yeah. oil and gas out in out in West Texas. You know, all of those notions of energy independence, um, and you know, the fact that you have now the U.S. as an exporter of oil and gas. You know the the amount of production that's coming out of West Texas is just astronomical. Um, but yeah, the the ranch that my father grew up on, um, and that where I spent a good part of my childhood. You know, there was legacy production that um, you know went back to the '40s and '50s, and some that was you know during during our lifetime. And um, you know, it was always the trick was to balance that with the other things going on at the ranch, um, and uh, make sure that there was a a coexistence, but I certainly don't want to give the listeners an impression that all of Texas is covered with uh, pump jacks. Yeah, um, yeah. You know, it's not. There are hot spots where oil and gas is produced. It's 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 a critical resource for the state. Generates lots of revenue, as you might imagine. Lots of lots of jobs, but um, it's not as if that's an activity that blankets the entire state. It's localized, obviously, where the oil and gas is and where it's viable to get out of the get out of the earth. Did you, uh, when you were young, did you know you were going to go into wildlife work? I didn't. Um, you know, it's, uh, I really, I, I didn't have a good sense that um, you could pursue that as a vocation didn't know until it later business. on. Yeah. You, you know, know it's funny when we were kids, like so many of the kids that like to hunt and fish, the only thing you could think of is everyone would say that they're going to be a game yeah, warden. Yeah, right, exactly. It was, it was like, I don't yeah. know, it seems like yeah, the only job warden. anybody yeah. was aware of. You yeah. Know? Well, and you know, to be fair, I had that too growing up. Um, there was a game warden in Gonzales County and one in Williamson County that were, you know, at the house and the farm and ranch all the all the time. They're wonderful mentors, wonderful role models. But, you know, Steve, really, I'd say it was college, um, and I was sort of meandering my way through trying to figure out what I wanted to do. No, I full well I didn't want to go to law school. Um, and I sat down one evening with a Parks and Wildlife game warden and a Parks and Wildlife wildlife biologist, and that was really the epiphany that – you know, I could pursue that as a, as a vocation. And I went and talked to a couple of my biology professors at the University of Texas. And, um, and they said, you know, if you're really interested in pursuing wildlife biology or wildlife management, you need to transfer to another school that has more of an applied resource management program. And so one of them said, go west, young man, to Sol Ross. And I said, well, where's that? And they said, that's in Alpine in far west Texas. And so I you know, dutifully looked it up, small school, has this kind of rich history in geology and 
wildlife and transferred to Sol Ross and, and then left school for a while to actually come work for Parks and Wildlife on one of their wildlife management areas. And a couple of professors from Texas Tech were, who were doing research on the wildlife management area convinced me that, you know, look, you really need to go back to school, finish up your degree in wildlife management. Why don't you come to Lubbock? Let us show you around campus. Um, you don't have that much to go. That's almost a rule now, isn't it? Yeah, it really is. It's, you know, I mean, to get it like administrative level stuff and well, wildlife. You know, it's there's certainly a lot of folks that have taken that trajectory. Um, I wouldn't the, the say gra- it's the a graduate rule, program, but the graduate program. And certainly yeah. if you're going to get employed, um, as a biologist with a state fish and wildlife agency, you need a master's degree for sure. I mean, it's just so hyper competitive. Um, and then candidly here, if you want to be a game warden, you've got to have a college degree. Now that there's no requirement that it's in criminal justice or fisheries and wildlife management or psychology, or maybe any of the other fields you might think of or affiliate with, with, um, law enforcement. Um, but you got to have a college degree. Um, and that's a very, you know, important, I think, distinguishing factor for our force. But yeah, the the advanced degree, if you want to go into the biological sciences and, and get into fisheries and wildlife management, it's just so so competitive these days. It's just about imperative. That's what that. drives it in your mind, just the competition. Yeah, the not co- not like a not like a it's not, it's not a prerequisite for application. Well, th- there is a prerequisite. I mean, I, typically we'll say preferred. Okay. Um, you know, and so and you know we've got plenty of biologists that um, that have undergraduate degrees and excel inside the agency, and then we have plenty of postdocs. So it it runs the gamut on the continuum. But on average, I'd say um, these days, competing for a state fish and wildlife agency job that a that a, that at least a master job is going to help um, give you a little extra chance in, in in what is a very very competitive field. Yeah, and you went off to Yale. I did. I did. I did. That must have been a real shocker. <laughs> that was a little Coming bit of a Alpine, culture Texas. shock. Yeah, right. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Somebody said I took a wrong turn in Waco. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, you know, did, I that, would, did that feel pretty, were you well-traveled or were you pretty, had just well, spent your life around Texas? No, no. I mean, I, I had, I, I wouldn't say I was well-traveled, but I'd been outside the state and outside the country. Um, yeah. And I was excited about a challenge. Um and candidly, when I was kind of making my meanders through college, which was a very circuitous um, course, um, before leaving tech, I had applied to Yale and gotten in and then decided that I didn't want to do that, finished up my degree, came to work for Parks and Wildlife, um, and was here for, oh, I guess almost two years and realized I needed to go get that advanced degree. And Parks and Wildlife was looking at creating a position where I could go to A&M, uh, pursue my master's and continue work full time with the department, which was a huge opportunity. Wow. But I went ahead, decided to um, pursue um, admissions again into Yale. And um, I went in to talk to Bob Cook, who was the wildlife division director at the time. And interestingly enough, was my predecessor as the executive director. And, um, and Bob said, Carter, we've got a terrific opportunity for you at College Station. Um, I think it would work out very well, but I'm going to take my Parks and Wildlife hat off. And if you were my son, I'd tell you to go east. Um, You need to go do that. You need to have a different experience in your life. Go, go experience a different culture, group of people, different type of education, um, and I think it'll put you in good stead in what you did. So I did. Uh, I mean, I was terrified, absolutely terrified. I can imagine, yeah. yeah. Uh, but loved it. Uh, you know, wonderful university, um, lots of people from all over the globe, very stimulating intellectually. 
Um, and there I had a chance to meet a professor that really became a, a professional mentor for me, um, a guy named Steve Kellert. Um, and Dr. Kellert and E.O. Wilson uh, wrote that biophilia oh, you hypothesis. Were, you worked with E.O. Wilson? Well, I him? got to meet him. Yeah, him. yeah, yeah that, him. that would be a stretch, but I, I did we work with Steve about Kellert. We about how he popularized that term biophilia. Yeah. We talked about him. My brother's an ecologist. Oh, he is. Okay. He read, reads yeah. a lot of E.O. Wilson. Yeah, well, he's uh, terrific. He's kind of a hero of his. Yeah, well, you know, and he... Is, uh, was. Did he pass away? No, no, he is. He's still, still he's still alive, yeah. um, and I think he's retired from Harvard. I mean, he's probably still a professor emeritus or something. You know, I'll never forget. He's written so much on so many subjects. Just what a intellectual giant! Um, and uh, and there was something that he wrote one time that always stuck with me. The little guy, it's the little guys that rule the world. Uh, you know, and of course he was an invertebrate biologist, and so loved ants and all the little things. And when you think about you know soil health and just the the criticality of of of, of microbes and the huge amount of biological diversity in our soil. And how that's just really the foundation for for everything. He was certainly spot on. Yeah, you, you, people that I mean, just listeners that are curious about what you're talking about is you can look up these comparisons of, you know, if you took everything, if you imagined all animal life like in an area and made a put it in a pile, and then took all animal life out of the soil and put it in a pile, like the comparison of sizes, and then you get into stuff like if you took all the beetles, yeah, in the world and put them in a pile, the the pile is bigger than all the humans. And large mammals, and you know, pretty dramatic. It, it's it? funny, like you just it's don't, pretty dramatic. you don't, you don't perceive the world that way. Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, another good comparison to that is like the tall grass prairie. You know, you look at those big, expansive, tall grasses, and then you dig up the root system, and uh, and what's on top of the soil pales in comparison to what's beneath. Yeah, it's it. like an iceberg. Yeah, that's, that's yeah. right. That's right. Yeah, the other interesting thing about Yale that. Um, was was um, I mean I knew it before going there, but of course it's where Aldo Leopold studied, um, mm-hmm. and so in the university very proud of that connection and that that ethic and you know Gifford Pinchot's time there, and and so there've been a lot of folks along history that went to school there, and you know a lot of them you know more in kind of policy related. Um, um, uh, positions, but uh, Steve Keller was just one of the brilliant thinkers, real interested in the the human wildlife interface uh-huh. and people's attitudes towards wildlife and nature and you know i think for anybody that goes into a career in fisheries or wildlife management or conservation law enforcement you quickly find out that most of your work is spent dealing with people not critters it's really funny you mentioned that because we had a leading mountain lion biologist on recently and he like in being circumspect yeah he's like you know i i mostly deal with people yeah 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 right <laughs> i'd rather deal with lions but i mostly in the, deal in with this people. line of work i spent yeah. a lot of time yeah. dealing with yeah. people yeah yeah i'd rather deal with deer but i mostly deal with people yeah yeah, yeah. Did, were you familiar with uh, the writings of Aldo Leopold yeah, before, yeah. He, before he went to school? Sand County, you know, Almanac. You grew up, you grew up just, around that kind of stuff? Yeah, yeah. well, I, a little later. I, yeah. You know, that 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 came to me in college. I think the Sand County Almanac was a, was actually a literature class I had at, at first school. I went to Swanee, University of the South, and, um, and it just really resonated with me. I mean, his prose was so elegant. I mean, it was so compelling. And he just wrote about the outdoors in ways that uh, really spoke to me. Um, and in ways that no one had done. And no one had done, yeah. 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 And what's interesting about that writing is it's timeless, right? I mean, we read it today, and we think, God, that was written you know, 70 years ago or so, and it's as relevant today as it was then. Anything in there, I, I reread it now and then, and anything in there that feels 
dated. It's not actually dated, but it almost feels prophetic. Like, like there's most of it feels like everything feels relevant. And then now and then you read something and it feels like, man, he really was looking yeah. kind of forward or, ta- or not say so much prophetic, but talking about things that wound up being proving to be pretty timeless. Yeah. 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 Well, I think the whole stewardship ethic, Yeah, you know, and of course at a private land state like Texas, um, that's very germane to what we, what we do. And I think Aldo Leopold wrote very, very persuasively and movingly about the criticality of that ethic and making sure we do everything we can to help foster and engender that in our, in our private lands managers and our private landowners. And so when you say private land state, you guys are in the nineties, yeah, 90%. we're 95, 95%. Yeah. And, and, you know, proudly so, I mean, that's part of the kind of the rich tradition of of Texas. And so um, we're a very proudly private lands state. And and also, you know, certainly from a a conservation perspective here in Texas, if you're going to get anything done, any kind of a meaningful scale in Texas, it needs to be in concert and partnership with with private landowners. And so that's a big driver for us. Well, I imagine. I mean, you said, you know, you have to be realistic about it. I'm sure there's plenty of people that would like to have some more public land opportunities. Sure. In a state like this, wildlife conservation is going to happen. It's going to happen on private land. Just it's where, where the raindrops fall. Right? Yeah, 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 you bet. I don't want to skip too much, but you wound up with the Nature Conservancy? I did, yeah. Yeah, I worked for the Nature Conservancy, and that was kind of an interesting transition. I um, When I left Yale, I was up in Canada for a while, up in the boreal forest, um, way doing north of Doing some moose work, yeah, right? Yeah, do some moose work, which is uh, pretty interesting. And uh, and then I got talked into coming back to Texas from some, interestingly enough, some parks and wildlife biologist friends that were really concerned about the development of the Katy Prairie west of Houston. It was okay. just a waterfowl mecca, uh, historic prairie wetland areas, lots of rice farming at the time, but Houston was, you know, on its inexorable march westward. And um, and there was a need for kind of a nature conservancy-like organization that could work with all parties to try to help protect some of that habitat before it all became impervious cover. And so I got. What talk- was the word you used? Impervious. So 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 just like this tabletop, you know, the yeah. parking lot, the asphalt, nothing gets. Oh, through. I got you. Like non yeah. non permeable. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I got yeah, you. yeah. And so. Um, and so Houston's moving west. You've got all this valuable rice farm habitat, wetlands, residual prairie, tons of waterfowl. Um, but, you know, the concern was it was going to get paved over unless there was somebody actively working to go out and work with landowners to try to figure out a way to conserve it. So interestingly, a group of waterfowl guides, uh, rice farmers, um, a couple of developers, real estate attorneys, um, and some of Houston's kind of middle-of-the-road conservationists said, we need to create a land trust-like organization. That was, that was the coalition? That was the coalition. Yeah, it was pretty cool. So they created this Katy Perry what, Conservancy. What, uh, real quick. Oh, you know what? Hold that thought. I'll, I'll hold the thought. What were you uh, looking at with moose up in Saskatchewan? So we were looking at a variety of things, and it was kind of this concept about trophic cascades and whether or not systems were controlled top-down through herbivory or more bottom-up through nutrient-related considerations. And at the I mean, like who's in the driver's seat? Yeah, kind of who's in the driver's seat. Yeah. And so, and, and, you know, how are forest management practices um, contributing to either, um, you know, helping or hurting moose populations. And there was a, this, this, this Coteria Universities that was working up on a Cree Indian reservation um, with funding from the National Science Foundation. And so they were looking at a wide variety of things. And it was, 
University of Saskatchewan, University of British Columbia, University of Washington, Harvard, Yale, couple of couple of others, and so there were there were professors and grad students from all over, um, and we lived on this Cree Indian reservation and um, and and worked very closely with the First Nations community. Um, the Saskatchewan provincial government on a variety of kind of research related topics. And my job was to help kind of keep all of that going. There were certain uh, numbers from the, the community that we had to hire for jobs associated with the research. When uh, researchers and their grad students would come up, I'd have to help them kind of get acclimated and help them get their research projects get uh, get set up. And so it was a pretty eclectic mix of things that we were we were we were studying. The moose stuff, obviously, is what caught my attention the most uh, because I knew so little about moose before I got up there, and it was just interesting to be around a big game animal that was so, you know, iconic um, yeah, in yeah. those in those in those forests. And yeah, I'll always treasure that time. Just uh, but the culture shock was about like going to New Haven, Connecticut. Yeah. Uh, so <laughs> in, in the other direction. In the other direction. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So anyway, I ended up making my way back to. Katie, at the behest of, um, of of folks here to help start this land trust, which I knew absolutely so nothing about. So, what was about. the yeah? When you talk about the, the the land trust for Katie Prairie, what was the what was the developer participation? You know, so the developer participation were were really a couple fold. Sierra Club was suing everybody over you know development of wetlands, violations of the Clean Water Act. I mean, it was World War Three over there on the on the on the Katie Prairie. Um, and so they were trying to find, let's create some organization in the radical center that can apply to everybody that's doing something applied, pragmatic, getting something done. It's not just a purely, uh, litigation oriented strategy. Got you. And, um, and, you know, and I would say at the, the, the area was, was pretty agricultural oriented. So it wasn't like a fit for an organization like the nature conservancy. Okay. And so that was the Genesis for, for, for the, the, the land trust being created. You mean meaning the nature conservancy would gen- is generally associated with less disturbed. Yeah. Yeah. Less disturbed land. That's right. Yeah. yeah, exactly. And, and then I think folks wanted, wanted a group that was local. Um, you know, it was locally driven. The board was local. People knew who they were representatives from these different sectors that, you know, kind of aligned around a plan to help protect parts of that Katy Perry. And, you know, to your question, the real estate developers, I saw it as a, as a quality of life issue. Okay. They, they saw it also as an appreciation to real estate is there was going to be development out there. There is development out there, but having open spaces, parks, wildlife areas, they saw that, or at least some of them saw that as a value add to what inevitably was going to be the, you know, future growth of, of Houston. And so having some of that preserved, they saw that as a, as a proverbial yeah, win-win. Play, playing the long game. Yeah, playing the long game. And, and I'll tell you what's, what's proved interesting about that too. If you look at, um, Hurricane Harvey, um, when it perched over Houston and West Houston and dumped, you know, 50 inches of rain, you know that area west of Houston, you know, becomes the, the the receiving ground for all of that rain. And the more that can slow down, the more it can can penetrate into the soil, percolate down there, as opposed to just running off concrete into a bayou. The less flooding it's going to cause. So, so as it turned out. You know, what the Katy Perry Conservancy was doing when I started there, you know, it was all about waterfowl and waterfowl. 
uh, habitat. Yeah. Um, today, it's a whole lot more about uh, kind of an unconventional flood control strategy and preserving open space to help with attenuating uh, uh, floods into Houston, in addition to protecting open space and wildlife habitat and places that people can, can go to get outside. People still hunt ducks there? Yeah. Yeah, they still do, which is terrific, you know. And um, we don't have the huge amounts of snow geese that we used to, to have. When I was there, those rice fields and wetlands were just absolutely covered with snow geese. It was one of the but most— But even that was an anomaly, though, right? Well, it was an anomaly because, you know, that rice attracted them. And, um, I mean, like that, that, that era that of era just— of the, Yeah, yeah, just the, 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 the sky, peak snow geese. Sky skies were white. Yeah, 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 yeah there are a lot you. of them, yeah. A lot of them, but, you know, lots of ducks of all stripes. You know, we're here at the tip of the funnel on the central flyway, so we get lots of waterfowl that, that come through here, and we spend a lot of time here at the agency working to conserve waterfowl habitat and, and make sure we're doing our part along the along the flyway. And um, and so that Katy Perry provided a pretty unique point, a little further inland from the coast. Um, but, yeah, those big flocks of snow geese have kind of gone away. Um, they seem to a lot of them have moved over to Arkansas, where you still have a lot of rice country. And, oh, is that right? Louisiana. Okay. Yeah, yeah, we just don't have the numbers. Did you uh, did you keep up as a hunter and angler through all this? Yeah, yeah. No, I never lost that. Um, and you know that certainly was my immersion in the out of doors. Is loved up, you know, hunting fish growing up. If I could you know, die dove hunting, I, you know, I, I, that'd be the pappiest, you know, way to go. I think from my perspective, I just, I just love that. Um, but I've always tried to make time for it. Um, now, you know, to be fair, you get a lot of folks that I love to hunt fish. And so I want to, you know, go get a, be a, have a career as a wildlife biologist or a game warden. It's not like you got a lot of copious free time to do all that. Yeah. yeah. So people get kind of disabused of that notion. It's a professional job, and you're going to have to make time just like anybody else to do the things you love. Yeah. Then you came here. No, then I went to work for the Nature Conservancy. And, um, and so I was um, recruited to go work for the Nature Conservancy in South Texas and northern Mexico. There's a project in the Laguna Madre de Tamaulipas and Laguna Madre in Texas, um, looking at kind of a binational conservation strategy with, um, and they wanted somebody that could relate well to landowners and would be comfortable at the time working at northern Mexico. It was a different time yeah. then. Explain binational. And so binational working in two countries. Um, and so, you know, what's interesting about the Laguna Madre system, you know, the one of the five largest hypersaline, super salty lagoons in the world. You have it in South Texas, basically from Corpus to Brownsville. Then you've got the Rio Grande. And then you have the Mexican Laguna Madre south of, of that. And they're both of them, um, again, super salty, loaded with, you know, redfish and trout and redheaded ducks and peregrine falcons and Kemp's Ridley sea turtles and shorebirds and wading birds and reddish egret. I mean, it's just, it's the amount of wildlife is, is, is stunning. Is it in good shape on both sides of the border? You know, there are, um, there are, there are differences. Um, one of the things that I think has helped the Texas side quite a bit is the big expanse of ranch country, undeveloped ranch country that borders the Laguna Madre. So okay. we're talking about the King Ranch, the Kennedy Ranch, some of our state's most uh, fabled and largest ranches. And the fact Which that Which are they, fairly in, like fairly intact, intact ecosystems. Yeah, yeah and in yeah. great shape. And yeah. they very actively manage those ranches for wildlife and conservation and, and rangeland health and so forth. Um, 
And so the lack of development um, along the Laguna Madre, both um, largely on the mainland side because of the big ranches, but then, of course, Padre Island National Seashore, longest, you know, undeveloped stretch of barrier island in the world, um, coupled with another big swath of protected land that's part of the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, Laguna Atascosa National Wildlife Refuge on South Padre Island, means that um, you just don't have a lot of developmental pressures in the Laguna Madre until you get deep down into the into the Rio Grande Valley near the Mexico border. Um, and so Texas side, pretty good shape. Um, you know, you get into Mexico, that, that, that system... Um, still biologically very unique, um, fished awfully hard. Um, oh, cause even like the, the one you guys in, in Texas, when there was such a slowdown on commercial redfish netting and stuff, yep. probably, those practices probably continued, I imagine. They do. They, yeah. they continue down there. Um, you know, they'll put these big nets across those little bayous and in, in inlets and just hammer the fish of all kinds. And, you know, candidly, our game board spent a fair amount of time, um, dealing with a legal, Mexican commercial fishermen coming into Texas. And so they'll come in these little pongas and they'll set these long lines and they will hammer our, you know, sharks and red snapper. Gotcha. Cause you're, just, flirt, cause you're just flirting with a, with a, you're flirting with a, marine, a, a marine border. A marine border. Yeah. yeah. And, and they come over, they set their lines and they come back and they get in and out and, and it, it, it's a real game of cat and mouse. Um, but it's that, that, pressure has really intensified over the years. I think is, you know, some of those fisheries in Mexico have had so much pressure on them that um, it's just been worth the risk to them to come over and try to sneak across the international boundary and fish in Texas waters. And so our our law enforcement team spends a lot of work making sure they're protecting our resources in that regard. Hey, uh, Yanni, hit him with the question you were talking about wanting to ask him. <clears throat> it's out of order, but it's, well, in, or- but it's, it's in order now. It's in order now, yeah. <laughs> I didn't know we had an order. <laughs> uh, we like to keep it secret. Yeah, yeah, there you go. Um, no, man, we're running through like, uh, think about it, like your childhood. Yeah, yeah. No, I that. see the sequence. Yeah. yeah. No, I got it. I got then it. Then we yeah. got peeled off on international <laughs> yeah, borders. Yeah, but we were wondering how much you work in concert with like the Mexican government now as Texas Parks and Wildlife with critters that are, you know, that live in that zone. Yeah, that might don't travel. care about whether they're in Yeah, Texas. exactly. They don't know. Yeah, migratory water, yeah. you know, migratory you waterfall. Bet. It's got to be bet. a conversation, right? It is, yeah, absolutely. And, in fact, we have a, a, a liaison that works here um, whose sole job it is to, um, you know, kind of work with some of our international partners. And so a big part of her job has been with working with our counterparts in Mexico on, you know, fisheries and wildlife issues. And you're right, you know, bighorn sheep or, or red-headed ducks could care less whether or not, you know, they're in Nuevo Leon um, mm-hmm. or, you know, West Texas um, or the coast of Texas or the coast of coast of Mexico. And so we still continue that work fairly actively, not as actively as it once was, just, you know, to be fair, the, the conversations are good. Um, you know, we have, uh, there's an international joint venture, the Rio Grande joint venture works on, uh, bird related priorities in both Texas and Mexico that we're very actively involved in. Um, we'll frequently host workshops for, um, Mexican biologists to come to, to, to come to Texas where we can help share information and disseminate information. Um, but you know, regrettably things have changed, um, in Northern Mexico and that has put a damper on, you know, some of our travel and the ease of working across borders to, um, share resources and work collaboratively on projects. And again, whether that's, 
um, Kemp's Ridley sea turtles on the coast and protecting nesting beaches or working together on, you know, redheaded duck related management or bighorn sheep or whatever. But there's still, there's still a dialogue and that's good. When you say that things have changed, are you referring to just like the escalation of drug related violence and then also things about things about border security really really more the former than the latter the, right? yeah, yeah the escalation of the of the cartels and the penetration into into northern mexico you know they're just issues associated with safety that we have to be very very mindful of um because of the areas in which um you know our folks work um you, you know, know that's, that's that reminds me of a point i like to raise with people now and then um where you grow up with this this idyllic sense or not even, let me put it a different way. Like people imagine this sort of post-apocalyptic situation where wildlife thrives. And I always find myself pointing out to people that if you look, like chaos does not serve wildlife well. Yeah, yeah, sure. Like stable, well-functioning governments serve wildlife well. You bet, you, you bet. Know, there's this idea that I, I, used to, I remember going to places like going in the Southern Philippines when I was younger. And I had my snorkel and mask, and I was like, "Oh, it'll be yeah, paradise." Like, on no her. one's ever seen yeah. these. And yeah. you go there, and yeah. you can't find a fish. <laughs> yeah, yeah. There's no, no no regulatory structure. Yeah. No enforcement. No yeah. protection. Sure, just illegal fishing, illegal methods. Yeah, using explosives, using poisons. No one to say no. Yeah, that's not right. Not sustainable. And after a while, you're like, "Yeah, it's the places that work smooth. Yeah, that have yeah. great wildlife." <laughs> well, and I think there's three legs to that stool, right? I mean, there's the biology side, there's the enforcement side, and then there's the dedicated funding side and you've got to have all three of those for those systems to function and so to your point i think you're right where you've got stable governments and you've got you know hunters anglers outdoor enthusiasts wherever you are on the consumptive or non-consumptive space and there's dedicated funding streams to support that you have professional scientists and then you have a professional law enforcement force that's that's charged with taking care of that and protecting it that's where you see the fish and wildlife thrive. You're 100% right. You know, are you familiar? We're going to get back on track in a minute, but are you familiar with the, how would you describe Shane Mahoney? We've never had him on the show. Are you familiar <laughs> with Shane Mahoney? Sure, I know Shane. Very, very charismatic, very eloquent, very, very passionate. But he's like a, he's, he's like a wildlife philosopher. Yeah, yeah, that's a, and that's a great way to put it. He's a wonderful ambassador for the North American. He is a deep, deep thinker yeah. about wildlife and the history of governments and conservation and what works and doesn't. But, you know, wildlife philosopher is a is a terrific, uh, I think, moniker for, for Shane and, and all the good he does all around the world. He, he raised the point with me that, that's, that kind of reflects what you're just saying, where you're talking about the system of but like like scientific management through biologists, you have a funding structure, you have private landowners who want to see wildlife motivated to that want yeah. to see wildlife on their property, enjoy yeah. wildlife. And he's describing all these functions that make our wildlife system work. Um and how complex it is and interwoven it is. Yeah. And he said one of the reasons our system is resilient is you you can't cut the head off the snake. There's not like a thing. There's not like some crystal thing that makes it work. Yeah, yeah. It's many it's things that work. And if, if you were, if someone were to go in for whatever nefarious reason, we're like, I'm going to destroy it. It wouldn't be clear what to do. Yeah, yeah. Like we have a. It's it's a very well supported, very well integrated system. Integrated. You know? Yeah, yeah. Uh, thankfully, thankfully. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah. Um. Okay, back on track now. So Yanni got his question <laughs> answered. Check. <laughs> give us a give us a breakdown. 
Well, no, land us where you're at now. Land us where you're at now. So the, you do that, Nature yeah. Conservancy. Did that Nature Conservancy for Then he um, said, I'm going to go run years. the whole damn uh, state. Yeah. <laughs> no, it wasn't that much of an epiphany, that easy <laughs> a transition, to say the least. Uh, probably, thankfully, I didn't know what I didn't know. Um, and... Uh, but no, I uh, I was happily doing my work at the Nature Conservancy, really enjoyed the conservation work. It felt like it was impactful in Texas, which was really my um, area of focus. Although, you know, as I said, I'd worked in northern Mexico for a while as, as well. But, you know, Texas being my home ground, that's that's where I was interested in, 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 in focusing. And and then I got recruited to um, kind of gauge my interest in in coming back to Parks and Wildlife in this in this job. And um, well, you came back to to serve the role you're in now. I did. Okay. I did. Yep. And um, and what a privilege. I, I mean, really, what a privilege. I um, I care deeply about my home ground, just as I expect most people care about theirs. And so, you know, the opportunity to work with a group of colleagues that are so passionate about you know place. And uh, our natural heritage and our and our history um, and our wild things and wild places. Um, I love that about this agency. And so um, the people were a huge attraction to me just because I've, I've, I've always held the department in very high esteem because of the professionals that I knew that worked for the department in different quarters. Um, and so that was appealing to me. And then just the opportunity to do things at a little larger scale to give back, not just in the stewardship related side, which I'm particularly passionate about, but also the outdoor recreation side. I I really believe firmly that if we're going to grow the next generation of conservationists, that we've got to figure out ways to immerse them in the outdoors. Now, it may not have been and probably won't be the same way I was immersed in the outdoors or either of you were, um, but wherever they are, wherever they're at, we need to figure out ways to introduce them and connect them. And I felt like Parks and Wildlife understood that from a, from a state agency perspective and that there was an opportunity to help grow that and expand that. And that really, that really appealed to me as a, as a way to give back to the state that's given me a whole lot. Hey man, it's a struggle to find time to manage one's finances. It's a struggle to find time to manage my finances. You go through like a busy week and the last thing you want to do is spend time budgeting, you know, your expenses and tracking down customer service teams to cancel old subscriptions you're paying for that you don't use but now you use rocket money and does all of that for me i'll tell you this this happens all the time in our family because like something will come out that we want to watch and they lure you in with a one month trial and you're like oh you know i'll, I'll do the one month trial then i'll come back and cancel and then i can watch this whole thing and then like you don't you forget about it and then and then a year goes by and you've been paying these guys 12 bucks all year and never watch a single thing this finds that stuff and gets rid of it for you Rocket Money is a personal finance app. It goes in and finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions. It helps lower your bills so you can grow your savings instead. Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has saved a total of $500 million in canceled subscriptions, saving members up to $740 a year when using all the app's features. Stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash meat eater. That's rocketmoney.com slash meat eater. Again, rocketmoney.com slash meat eater.
O'Reilly Auto Parts are in the business of keeping your car on the road. O'Reilly Auto Parts offer friendly, helpful service and the parts knowledge you need for all your maintenance and repairs. If you're confused about what part you need, like what wipers are going to be the best, what replacement headlights are going to be the best, go into O'Reilly and talk to the people that work there because they're great and they're super friendly and they'll get you squared away where you walk out knowing you got the right thing. They've got thousands of parts and accessories in stock, either in-store or online, so you never have to worry if you're in a jam. Do you need your windshield wipers replaced? you need a brake light fixed? you need some quick service? They'll help you find the right part or point you to the nearest local repair shop for help. The professional parts people at O'Reilly Auto Parts are your one-stop shop for all things auto do-it-yourself, and you can find what you need in-store or online. Stop by O'Reilly Auto Parts today or visit us at O'ReillyAuto.com slash MeatEater. That's O'ReillyAuto.com slash MeatEater. Pay attention here because this is a hell of a good service. It's called The Wellness Company. Picture this, okay? You wake up, you got a scratchy throat, you're all congested, you got a runny nose, you got a cough, whatever. And you weigh your options like you tough it out, get sick, take time off work, try to get a doctor's appointment sometime in the next few months, wait two hours at urgent care and sit in a room full of sick, sick folks, or you open your medical emergency kit. You match your symptoms to the doctor-recommended prescription and you start on the right meds right away. These medical emergency kits, not a first aid kit, all right? It comes with doctor-prescribed meds to treat over 39 medical issues. So, on hand, strong antibiotics for infections of all types. Plus, a doctor's easy guide so you know exactly what to take and when. No waiting to see the doctor, no waiting at the pharmacy. It's all in there. Every home should have at least one medical emergency kit. Order yours online in minutes. Your kit will be rushed to your door. Get 15% off at twc.health slash meat eater, but you got to use the promo code meat eater. That's promo code meat eater, okay, at twc.health slash meat eater. You probably can't even answer this. Do people come along and ever vet you? As an interior secretary, as oh gosh, their 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 bar is much higher than than that. I feel like that should be your next. I feel like that should be your next play. Oh, you know, I love Texas, <laughs> and and you'd have to dynamite me out of here. I think it's uh, or shoot me out of here, which uh, there's probably a line of folks wanting to do that. <laughs> what? Uh, give me an overview on um, just like the the scale of Texas Parks and Wildlife Department. Well, so, you know, we cover the whole state, you know, 254 counties, uh, 150 million acres or so of terrestrial wildlife habitat. Um, Our boundaries go out nine nautical miles into the Gulf of Mexico, 200,000 miles of rivers and creeks and streams, you know, roughly, you know, with our meandering shoreline, a little over 4,000 miles of that. So is that right? It is, it is big and it is vast. You know, you draw a straight line, I think it's 367 miles. You, you do all the, yeah. you know, bays and estuaries and so forth. And it's, it's scaled up considerably along the, along the coast. Yeah, there's an interesting statistic about uh, Prince of Wales Island and the island of uh-huh. Hawaii. Yeah. Or Prince of Wales Island, I don't know, it's half the size or a third the size, but that's twice the coastline. Is that right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Kind of same all thing. The, all the fjords. Fjords and, and yeah. yeah, exactly. Kind of same phenomena. 
but you know the scale is 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 fascinating. I, you know, ten or eleven different ecoregions. Um, you know, from the deserts to the coast to the subtropics down into the Rio Grande Valley, the southern terminus of the high plains, the southern terminus of the Rocky Mountains. You know, the the Edwards Plateau in the central part of the state, a place that E.O. Wilson, of all people, called the 26th biodiversity hotspot in all the world just because of the proliferation of interesting fish and wildlife organisms and plants that, that reside there. The Big Thicket, which is, you know, more like the south um, over in the eastern part of our state. And so it is big and it is diverse as an artifact of the size, you know, kind of the accident of geography thing. It's situated a pretty interesting part of the globe. Where all oh, these for systems- sure, man. You got stuff that from a passing glance, you could think it was tropical jungle. Yeah, yeah. And then you yeah. have, then it's amazing because you go up and you have the, like, short grass prairie. Yeah, like right. Buffalo country buffalo. of sure. the yeah. Texas panhandle. Right, exactly. Where guys would, where guys would talk about traveling for days <laughs> without seeing a tree. Tree, yeah, and did. Yeah. And it looks like the Great Plains. Yeah, absolutely. Got those rolling, undulating hills. You know, maybe you'd hit a little bottom with some cottonwoods and a spring-fed creek and, 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 you know, a lot gamier than people realize. But, yeah, there are parts of the panhandle that, you know, I'd pluck us all down in and you'd say, sure, I'm, I'm, I'm here in Kansas. I'm, yeah. I'm in Nebraska. Uh, but you're in the Texas panhandle. Or, conversely, uh, parts of far west Texas where you get up in some of the mountains um, and you get some ponderosa pine and aspen and, you know, think you're in New Mexico or Colorado. And so that's that's fun to be able to work in a state that has that level of diversity of kind of plant and animal communities and to play a role in helping to, to manage them and conserve them. What's your guys' best guess on how many deer say? You know, and our best guess is a is a is a good way to put it. But I, you know, maybe in the five million range when how many you look people? at whitetail deer, about twenty eight million people. Oh. Yeah. So, you know, we grow by about a thousand Texans a day. So as you can imagine. Um, seriously? Seriously. Yeah. Yeah. It's impressive. Our our growth rate has just been um, pretty high and pretty consistent. This state grows by a thousand? Roughly. Yeah. What's driving it? Yeah. It's the economy? I, yeah, the economy. Um, I mean, people come here for business, quality, quality of life. Um, you know, 85, 86% of us live in nine major metropolitan areas. So, you know, Texas spite of all that vast rural nature nature um empty in the middle empty in the middle um um or populous in the middle and and, or, and empty yeah, on, the, on the empty on the on the fringes empty yeah. on the outskirts yeah yeah yeah, I got yeah, you. yeah. uh so five million roughly five million deer yeah, five million deer five million white tails let's yeah. say someone then came and said to you um like they wanted to make a bet with you about how right the number was yeah like how 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 possibly wrong could a number like that be well and when you I, guys sit around trying to like throw because five million sounds like a pretty convenient yeah round number sure know? yeah and i and you know take that again is, is it from mod is it from modeling just like air. looking at densities and then multiplying yeah so our, our our biologists are actively involved you know with survey of all kinds of animals um year round you know depending on what the species is you know certainly white-tailed deer are surveyed very, very extensively, not only by biologists with this department, but by private landowners and others. But five million is an estimate. And so that's a rounding number for me. Um, and so is that accurate within plus or minus 10%, 15% probably? Okay. We got a lot of deer. Yeah. Um, and in many cases, too many deer. And so, you know, the issue is not so much how do we bring back deer in our state. We've already done that very, very successfully. 
the challenge is how do we get hunters to shoot enough deer? How do we get landowners to accept allowing hunters to shoot enough deer without being concerned that, you know, they've shot all my deer. You know, I don't That's see really anything. interesting because a friend yeah. of mine, this is, I don't, I don't want to say is who said this because it's going to sound cynical, but he was, oh, and this is not you talking, this is me talking, but a friend of mine was like, he says, I'm always baffled when I hear someone say whitetail conservation. Whitetail conservation is shooting whitetails. <laughs> <laughs> well, but to be fair, you know, there are parts of the south and parts of the country and where whitetail numbers have declined. Uh, and so, you know, why that's happening, um, you know, probably myriad reasons. In Texas, that's not the case. So when you say too many, too many by what measure? Like too many according to who? Yeah, too many according to what the habitat can reasonably sustain. Okay, so know? it's not ag, it's not car insurers. No, it's, you know, I mean, we hear from you know, some farmers in certain locales about about deer densities being too high and concern about crop depredation. That's really a very, very small part of what we deal with. Okay. Um, occasionally, we'll hear uh, uh, from an insurer about, you know, deer vehicle accidents, but that's really an anomaly. The, but that does happen. Oh, sure. I mean, yeah. occasionally, but it's, you know, it's, it's really <laughs> more the poor motorist to you know, hit a deer and then, well, that's the state's deer. And so the state needs to pay me for the damage to my car and my lost trip. And what's your view this on that? And, and that they're everybody's deer. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, it's so, uh, yeah, no, we don't have any liability associated with that. I mean, always, but that's uh, something people test. Oh, it's occasionally, you know, it's, uh, it's probably been a couple of years since, since I've heard somebody make a vigorous case in that, uh, in that regard. But, um, but you know, we do have a lot of deer vehicle accidents. It's something you have a lot of deer feral hog accidents. Um, you know, you gotta be mindful driving in rural areas. And That's so, an issue in Texas. It is. Hitting a pig with your car. Yes. Yeah. And that'll cause serious damage. I mean, yeah. I, you know, it's like hitting a bear. Um, in fact, there's right around Austin, there's a, a, um, a loop that was, that was built a new tollway. And when it put in, it was put in, it seemed like there was, uh, a, a vehicle feral hog collision every single day. Um, you know, and this just happened for a year or two. And finally, a couple of the counties got together and said, you know, we've got to start working on some feral hog solution. This is a public safety problem. Um, you know, there's all these other myriad problems associated with feral hogs. But, um, you know, a, a, a loop around Austin and San Antonio with a 85 mile an hour speed limit and somebody hitting a feral hog that's a recipe for real problems um so um so yeah deer hog collisions are up are are, are is it one of the things that keep us laying awake at night about the things yeah, on yeah, our list you. no yeah Let, uh let's talk about hogs because i had a bunch of hog questions let's just do them now um do you, what's a ballpark on hogs can you even venture to guess how many do you have more <laughs> yeah. hogs than deer I don't think so. You know, the numbers that, that, that I hear consistently and, you know, you listen to the margin of error of this are somewhere between two to four million hogs. So how accurate is that? Nobody knows. So they're hard we, to count. We, we, they're, they're hard to count, you know, because they're largely nocturnal. Okay. Um, and they're not really good methodologies um, that are established and that are being practiced on a regular enough basis to estimate numbers. And again, remember with, you know, species like deer, a lot of what we're interested in is trends over time, right? The exact numbers are less important than the trends and yeah. in other specific um, um, uh, indices and, 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 and metrics. But 
lots of hogs. Every we have we have feral hogs in every one of our counties now. Um, really? So how many counties you guys got? Two hundred and fifty-four. No kidding. Yeah, and that's not so a badge ho- of honor. So your hog distribution map is the state. It is the state. It is the state. And I and even on that like crazy West Texas. Yes. Yeah, where you couldn't think there's there's like Havelina the, country. There Havelina country. Very little surface water. Um, not a lot of topsoil. It is astounding how adaptable and resilient those feral hogs are. Will they displace javelina? You know. Yeah, I think that when when hogs will come into an area and really take over, um, oftentimes they will disrupt. Um, you know those those very strict social structures that um, that uh, javelina live in, and will displace them from from a from a habitat utilization perspective. So we certainly see that. Let me ask you, if you could um, wave a magic wand, this is our favorite question when it comes to pigs, because a lot of times we have people who even work in the hog eradication industry, and we'll ask them if you could wave a magic wand and have pigs go away, they'll say, no, I wouldn't wave it, and not only, and not just because I do this for a living, but they just come to appreciate them over time. they're a fascinating animal, aren't they? Yeah, so let's say, here you are. I present you with this wand. <laughs> Magic like, wand. If, as yeah. much as there's an industry in your state, it people come here. I got friends that come from Montana to yeah, go to Texas to hunt pigs. Yeah, they love it. Yeah. Would you would you wave the wand and they would be absolutely gone from the state? You know, that's a that's a great <laughs> question. You're gonna have to put me in that camp that's decidedly mixed professionally and personally. You know, professionally be the right thing to do. Because you've probably been hunting them your whole life. Oh, my whole life I grew up with them and I do have a deep appreciation for them and they are fun to chase. And we've got a lot of landowners that in, enjoy that, but we certainly have an equal amount or more that um, uh, are just uh, run over with hogs. Huge problems. So, so how do you but how do you like there's so, no such thing as a balance between these two things. No, and there's, that's a, it's an interesting push-pull. But, you know, professionally, uh, we are pushing hard to, to do everything we can to um, encourage landowners and hunters and others to um, trap as many hogs, shoot as many hogs. You know, we're working on a fascinating uh, uh, natural toxicant that is derived from sodium nitrite, you know, food preservative. And our biologists have been working in concert with scientists from – um, Australia, New Zealand, and, and here in Texas in USDA to test that toxicant. It's a it toxicant. It's a it's a bait. It's a pellet um, that's got a very specific delivery mechanism to preclude other non-target species. But not lethal to deer. Not lethal to deer. Not lethal to birds. Not lethal to cattle. Oh, or that's horses. really interesting. And so we're still in the testing phase. Yeah, imagine you want to test that pretty carefully. Oh yeah, got to. Yeah, I mean, mm-hmm. I clearly we. Um, don't want to have some unintended impact on all the other sure, yeah, species yeah. of wildlife and things that we that we care about. But it's been a fascinating study by our biologists at one of our wildlife management uh, area, and so they've gone back to the drawing board with um, the size of the pellet, um, the amount of the toxicant in the pellet. And what's interesting about this is sodium nitrite. Hogs that eat it in a certain quantity it stops the oxygen flow to the brain. So they'll eat it and then they'll go off and kind of go to sleep. So, you know, it's not like other kinds of pesticides that you hear about that, you know, have some pretty dramatic effects. Yeah. And um, and so we're, you know, adverting to those kind of concerns, but we're particularly concerned about wanting to make sure we've done everything to attenuate impacts on non-target species, right? We want to focus on hogs. So we're not ready for... 
um, to, to have EPA approval yet and have Is that. That, that, would out. Requ- that would require that. That would require EPA approval. Yeah. 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 So we're rigorous testing. We've been working on this for eight years or now, um, testing different pellet formulations. You probably get a lot, of, a lot of cooperation from other entities, right? There have been a lot of interest in that. A lot of interest. Yeah. You know, similarly, though, you know, to your point earlier, we've got. You know, landowners in part of the state that have operations that, you know, hunters come in from 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 out of state, in state to hunt feral hogs. And so, you know, they'd be real concerned about yeah, some But it can be massive, geographically controlled, too. Sure. And, and a landowner's choice. And, and really, at the end of the day, people have to get comfortable with the fact that you're not going to you're not going to eradicate feral hogs. You can manage them, you can try to control them, but you're probably not going to eradicate. So that's not really like, the, the whole realistic. magic wand scenario. You don't imagine. not realistic. Yeah. How far out might be? I mean, let's say you got there. You know, let's say the the sodium nitride. Yeah, yeah. Let's say you got there. Like, how far out might something like that be? If you You know, I think it runs a normal course of process. I I, I think we'd still be several years away, and by that, you know, say a minimum of three. There's more field testing that would have to be done. You know, we've been doing this in a in a in a setting on a wildlife management um, area in which we've been able to test it in pretty controlled environments. We've gone out with. wildlife services and done some preliminary field tests and that's caused us to kind of go back and again look at that bait formulation uh the palatability look at the the level of the toxicant um in there and so probably we'll go back out in the field sometime in the next year to test that again but we're, we're several years away from that you say sodium oh, nitrite. yeah nit- nitrite nitrite yeah so I, my question is uh, does that start kind of the brining process so that is it safe for human consumption afterwards like it can yeah. go right to the smoker yeah there's yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> just right there it's, yeah, it's well, cured yeah yeah, like, yeah you, right yeah, exactly yeah cured? no i don't think it does that uh, that for you but but obviously we are concerned about you know is right. somebody Who, shoots a feral hog sure that, that uh, ended up eating some of that bait. Or that other animals to, uh, eating that. Oh, yeah, that'll, that'll all be part of the testing that, process. That's part yeah, of the testing. Sure, yeah, yeah, you bet. Yeah. You bet. So I, we're making sure that we're, we're looking at every facet of this, both from a non-target perspective, but also the human health and safety. It'd be, it'd be wildly irresponsible not to, right? Oh, yeah. So, um, you know, as a state fish and wildlife agency, we have to, we have to do that. And this is a pretty unique area of research for us. Um, and so we've got a real dedicated team of biologists and scientists, again, working in active partnership with USDA and other research institutions on this. But there's a real hunger out there for some kind of a solution to the feral hog problem. Um, you can't shoot your way out of it. You can't trap your way out of it. You don't think so? That's interesting. So you would say within Texas, like more than 50% of your constituents would say let's try to make less hogs yes yes what are the main what are the main whys like what are the, what are the main arguments against hogs yeah destructive you know a lack of real kind of meaningful predators on them their populations just go up and up you know they're tearing up fields tearing up roads tearing up tank dams you know displacing native species um I'd say those are the, the 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 principal ones. It's just kind of their their destructive and unchecked nature, mm-hmm. you know, in terms of how they grow. You know, with their gestation period is what three months, three weeks, and three days. So they're having litters all the time, and their litters, you know, maybe you know ten, twelve, fifteen piglets, and so it's just hard to get the brakes on them. And yeah, um, a deer a deer is going to kick off. 
Yeah. A deer's going to kick off one or two fawns a year. That's right. That's right. And, and she's going to kick off, what, 24? Uh, yeah. And so Possibly they're going to, they're probably going to have, you know, two groups of hogs every year, sometimes three. Um, they reach sexual maturity at a very young age. And, you know, it, and coyotes will kill hogs and mountain lions will kill hogs, but, but not in a way that's keeping those numbers in check. And certainly hunters aren't doing that either. Explain what exactly. What is the regulatory structure around shooting hogs from helicopters? Yeah. How does this work? How does that work? So um, there's a lot of confusion about this. Sure. So first off, the, the pilot has to have an aerial wildlife management permit. And remember, everything, the overarching governance for that is the Federal Airborne Hunting Act. So there's a, there's a federal regulation which governs what states can do. Now, states can work within the parameters of that federal act, but there's an overarching Federal Airborne Hunting Act that basically says you can't hunt from a helicopter or a fixed-wing aircraft. Now, so how does that translate into people shooting hogs out of a helicopter in Texas? Which yeah, is or like aerial wolf control in Alaska, and yeah, uh, and then or coyotes and, here in, in Texas. Stuff, yeah. Sure, yeah, right. So um, in Texas, um, the Texas Parks and Wildlife Department, we essentially serve as the agent for helping to permit activities under that Airborne Hunting Act, and so we'll issue an aerial management permit to a helicopter operator. And so that's an annual permit, has to be renewed. There's certain reporting-related requirements. And that's required if you're going to, you know, count wildlife from the air, if you're going to photograph wildlife from the air, if you're going to trap wildlife from the air, if you're going to shoot hogs or coyotes from the air, you've got to have that aerial wildlife management permit. You also have to have what's called a landowner authorization agreement or what we call the acronym an LOA, landowner authorization agreement, LOA. And that LOA is approved by the landowner on whose property you're flying over and say shooting hogs or, or coyotes out of the helicopter. So the landowner has to approve it, has to approve the activity. So whether that's a wildlife census or maybe it's a trapping of exotics, um, um, or shooting coyotes or hogs out of a helicopter. And then there are agents and sub-agents of the landowner that are approved on that landowner authorization agreement. And so those can be observers and they can be shooters on the helicopter. But it's a it's geo-referenced. The landowner has says, you know, within these boundaries, I've approved this map you have this letter authorization agreement to conduct those aerial management activities, whatever they are. Yeah. So that's kind of the regulatory permitting structure um, that we have put in place here. Um, there's been a real uh, boom, I'd say, in the last um, three to five years of helicopter companies marketing to people to, you know, come be designated agents and, and, and shoot um, out of their helicopter to shoot hogs out of a helicopter. But it's critically important that, um, that, that you've got that landowner authorization agreement and you're identified, again, as, as, a, as an agent or a sub-agent and that you're only flying and shooting over property which you have permission and that your pilot is properly licensed and that, and that your pilot is properly licensed. And again, there's reporting requirements and other compliance things that they have to, they have to meet. We've, um, um, it's been an important tool for landowners. Um, you know, really? Doing, yeah. Yeah. Landowners will use that. And particularly, 
Um, like, if, a, like a guy can realize a, a guy can realize real movement of a problem. It can, but I but I think you'd look at it seasonally and temporally. You know, okay. so so let's say. Um, you know, you want to target hogs and you, you go up in the air and you've got some shooters, you've got a good pilot and you find number of sounders and you hammer those hogs. Um, you're going to knock them back for a while. You may chase them onto somebody else's property, Mm -hmm. but you're going to realize some relief. Now that's not permanent relief, um, because they're going to come back, right? Nature abhors a vacuum. So you're going to have to manage them. You're going to have to stay after them, but it can help give a temporary reprieve. So, you know, when we're recommending those activities, again, from a feral hog perspective, it's, you know, shoot, shoot often. Um, you know, you can hunt year round. There's no limits, um, legislation passed in our recent, uh, legislative session, that if you're a landowner or a landowner's designated agent, you don't need a hunting license to hunt feral hogs. Okay. Um, but if you're just out shooting feral hogs or hunting feral hogs and you're not witnessing them in the act of depredating livestock or crops, uh, you really need a hunting license. So there's a little bit of a dichotomy um, there from an enforcement perspective. But again, we we encourage the harvest of feral hogs. And so... You know, we've tried to throw everything but the kitchen sink at it in Texas, um, but but it still feels a little bit like Sisyphus pushing the rock up the hill at times. To what extent do you agree with the statement that enthusiasm around hog hunting actually drives and increases hog numbers in Texas? Well, I think that's fair in part. Yeah, yeah, I think that's fair in parts um, because people love coming to Texas to hunt hogs, and that's great. I, we want folks from out of state to come, give us a chance to showcase our state, just like you know other states would like to do that or do that as well and do it very, very well. But yeah, no, we welcome and want folks to come to Texas to hunt hogs or deer, turkeys or quail or doves or waterfowl or or, or, or whatever. Does that drive increased numbers or help to artificially? prop them up. Well, I I guess in the sense that as opposed to a management philosophy in that area in which people are really working to actively control them, keep the numbers down, yeah, probably works against us. Um, Is that the principal reason why hog numbers are just off the charts high in Texas? Probably not. Yeah. Meaning? High rates of reproduction, no real significant predation we don't shoot enough of them to be able to keep up with their biology of yeah. of, of of reproduction and so um those factors uh have much more of a bearing than um the fact that you may have landowners in certain areas that you know see see wild hogs as a resource for them they are people pay good money to come stay at their places and have a have an experience hunting hogs love it the great revenue stream for them diversifies their operation maybe makes it more likely that um you know they're able to manage their land keep the family the 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 property and the family and so forth but i wouldn't say that is a big tipping point for why we have so many hogs in texas and I imagine too, once they're established, it, it doesn't really matter. But you're, you, I'm sure you're familiar with this. That some states that are on the edge of the expansion of hogs will preemptively ban hog hunting. Yeah. To de-incentivize individuals who might think it'd be cool to bring one home. I don't blame them. And cut it loose. Sure. Yeah. 
And I, we worry about that. Is some, you know, disingenuous person comes and traps a load of hogs in Texas and then illegally transports them across state line and thinks, wouldn't this be fun to release them on my property and, you know, state X? Well, and, I mean, it absolutely has happened. And right? it absolutely yeah. has happened. It does happen. Um, and that's a problem. But you guys have probably had hogs since the 1500s. We've had hogs for a long time, you know. Um, it's like European. essentially like this place at this point it's one could almost start to think of it as almost a native animal and that it's been <laughs> not really but well, it's been here hundreds of years they've naturalized right yeah. i mean that's how i think about hundreds it. They, of years they've naturalized you know you think about hogs being brought over by the spaniards um some of those practices you know i mean they turn them loose in the bottomlands and let them get fat sure yeah. get fat in the winter and eat acorns and uh, and then looked up, you know, round them up such as it was. And, and obviously then you had those feral hogs, hogs that were originally domestic, get out, reproduce, start to rewild, produce a subsequent generation, produce another one. Next thing you know, we've got wild hogs and, 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 and those numbers have just grown and their geography has grown. Since I've had this job, which will be 12 years in January. Um, again, no badge of honor here, but um, I think when I started, there were still maybe 15 counties or so that we didn't have feral hogs in and would have thought, well, there's no way they're going to get to El Paso, right? I mean, I, what's, what are they going to do there? And and then all of a sudden, well, it's seven counties that, that don't that have right? feral hogs. Then it's three. Then it's one, <laughs> and then pretty soon, okay, we've documented hogs in every county. And, and no one's come looking to kick you out of here. <laughs> oh, I'm sure they've looked for other reasons, <laughs> but uh, I don't think I've been blamed singly for that that problem. Got one, one more pig question for you. Yeah. I was reading a piece one time, and it was talking about that somehow there'd been like an oversight and shooting hogs from hot air balloons. Yeah. Wasn't ele- what had, was somehow illegal. And the state remedied this. Is this true? Yeah, yeah. No, there was there so was someone identified someone identified a problem that like once they looked at the rule books, they realized they couldn't hunt from a hot air balloon. <laughs> yeah, and you know whether that's happened, I guess it's Texas, right? Sure, Anything's like, probably somewhere, happened somewhere, somewhere but, somehow. But it's just so it's such a funny thing to yeah, realize was yeah. like. Yeah, like the the when you look at the detail, you realize the <laughs> hot air balloons are excluded. <laughs> Let's go close time that loophole. On, time on that guy's hands. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No doubt, no doubt. Uh, tell me about elk a little bit because I know from uh, I'm a member of Rocky Mountain Elk yeah. Foundation. And I read yeah. their and I read. I do a lot of great work. Yeah, I read their their magazine. They come out with Bugle, and um, I think it was in there that I read a piece where. Texas had a weird situation where elk had been extirpated out of Texas in the yeah. early 1800s. Yeah, so largely. They've been yeah. gone for 100 plus years. There's some elk back now. And there's some sort of pro and con. There's pros and cons to whether elk would be regarded as a native animal in Texas and argument about to what degree were they really present and where. Yeah. Can you break this down? Are you familiar, are you familiar with what I'm talking about? Oh, yeah. About? No, no, no. I'm, I'm acutely familiar with uh, with that. And by the way, the Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation just does terrific, terrific work. Um, I, don't so, remember the, I don't remember it being, I don't know that it was super critical of Texas. No, I mean, okay. I, but, it, but it's but it's been a topic of interest yeah, um, break that down for, for a while. People. I think because it, it helps explain yeah. wildlife politics. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, historically, there were elk in Texas and, and probably covered a fair amount of the state. Is I mean, right? they were in the okay. grasslands. 
you know, um, kind of down through the central part of the state, you know, maybe even along uh, part of the part of the coast. Um, and um, and then you're right. Sometime in the you know mid to late teen, late eighteen hundreds, they really contracted. And, you know, there were some relic elk up in the Guadalupe Mountains on the New Mexico border, um, probably some free-ranging elk that still wandered through the Texas panhandle and parts of uh, other parts of, of West Texas, but largely extirpated from the state. But we, as an agency, we consider elk to be native. Historically, they were here. As an they agency, were, you consider As an agency. Okay. They, were, they, are a, they are a native species of wildlife. Now, here's where the rubber hits the road. You translate that to, well, show me where elk are in Texas and how'd they get there. Have they always been there? Were they introduced? And that, and it's a really eclectic mix of situations. I don't understand that. So, like, um, like for example, elk absent largely from big parts of Trans-Pecos or West Texas, our mountainous country. You're saying historically absent. No, no, no. In recent time. Okay. Yeah. Gotcha. And so, and so let's say 40 years ago, Parks and Wildlife works to then go get elk from Rocky Mountain states to restock elk in right. parts of West Texas. And so we've got elk in the mountains. And that was going on, West, was that going on 40 years ago? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah okay. 30, 40 years ago or so, that was certainly, certainly going on. Um, you know, lots of efforts, of course, is biologists were working to restock fish and game populations that had been um, pushed lower for a variety of yeah, reasons. And, and sometimes yeah. with kind of a cavalier approach. And, 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 and some, as you look back on it, uh, some of it looks a, a little bit that way. Like pull it's, up truck, open the gate. <laughs> Clear everybody yeah. out and drive off, <laughs> yeah. and then we've come a long way. We've come a long way to see what happens. We've come a long way in that in that regard, particularly with disease concerns and yeah. you know concern about um, health related issues, capture related myopathy, all those issues. I, that that uh, translocating animals has come a long, long way since the the Wild West days, mm-hmm. in which you're referring to. But so the department did a lot of restocking of elk in the in the state. Um, in state, in the elk were treated as a game animal up until I think the mid '90s, and the legislature was petitioned by landowners out in West Texas to declassify it as as no longer being a game animal. Because that would mean what? So what that means is is no longer it, it now became classified as an exotic, and so no seasons, no bag limits. You need a hunting license, but basically as a landowner, you could manage the hunting of elk or opportunity to hunt on your on your property or ranch without worried about, well, the elk season is only a month long or I'm only going to get three bull tags. Um, you know, basically you had the ability to decide how you were going to manage elk, how you were going to hunt elk. And so well, how, how, how is the state, if someone proposed that for deer, you wouldn't like it? No. We, so how is how what is the argument? I mean, I understand just I understand on the individual landowner basis. Most people, and I would be included in this probably, most people are going to want a higher degree of autonomy on one's own yeah. property. But like I said, if someone came and proposed that to you, like I said, you know what? From now on, um, I want you to just give me the okay to do what I want with mallards that are on my property. I want to hunt them year round as much as I want. Yeah, you're going to say. No way. We're okay. going to resist that. But, but here's what I didn't finish on the history of elk in Texas. What also began to crop up were private individuals bringing in elk from uh, captive elk farms okay. and, and essentially um, 
there were all of these kind of high fenced hunting ranches in which you know elk might be placed on and in areas where probably historically there weren't elk or they were intermittent at best. And so you had kind of all these captive elk herds. And so the state became kind of a grab bag of, of, of elk from different locations, managed differently, different settings. Um, so we've been in this situation now where elk, while we consider them native, um, statutorily they're still considered an exotic. And so you don't have the same kind of regulations that, um, you know, traditional big game have. And you, and, and you have like, you don't have management authority over them. We, we don't have management authority. Do they over continue them. to, do they continue to thrive in areas that would be regarded as potentially historic range? Yeah. So the elk are doing pretty well in parts of West Texas. So for example, you know, the Davis mountains is a very popular area for people to go hunt, you know, free range elk in a mountain setting that looks like New Mexico. And so, you know, places you might have a legitimate chance at a 400 inch bull. Um, so pretty significant bull elk, you know, at a, at what people would think of, you know, today is kind of a traditional Western kind of mountain, mountain hunt. Um, but that dichotomy that you mentioned about, you know, some groups would like to see them reclassified as a game animal and have the state take over management of them. Others want to make sure they stay in their current form where they've got that kind of autonomy that you spoke to. That tends to split landowners right down the middle in West Texas. Some of them. Was oh, that right? Yeah. yeah. We, we like the way it is. We want to continue to have that independence. Others of them say, no, we'd like to see it be a game animal. The, the 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 elk farms the 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 kind of the, the the elk ranches that's a whole separate deal separate and apart from you know free range elk populations in in far west texas i think you'd have to treat those differently uh, just very very different settings and in 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 circumstances from a management perspective and uh, and so the in fact the the state's animal health commission has really the regulatory jurisdiction over elk as an exotic not the not Got parks you. and wildlife department O'Reilly Auto Parts are in the business of keeping your car on the road. O'Reilly Auto Parts offer friendly, helpful service and the parts knowledge you need for all your maintenance and repairs. If you're confused about what part you need, like what wipers are going to be the best, what replacement headlights are going to be the best, go into O'Reilly and talk to the people that work there because they're great and they're super friendly and they'll get you squared away where you walk out knowing you got the right thing. They've got thousands of parts and accessories in stock, either in-store or online, so you never have to worry if you're in a jam. Do you need your windshield wipers replaced? you need a brake light fixed? you need some quick service? They'll help you find the right part or point you to the nearest local repair shop for help. The professional parts people at O'Reilly Auto Parts are your one-stop shop for all things auto do-it-yourself and you can find what you need in-store or online. Stop by O'Reilly Auto Parts today or visit us at O'ReillyAuto.com slash meat eater. That's O'ReillyAuto.com slash meat eater. Pay attention here because this is a hell of a good service. It's called the Wellness Company. Picture this, okay? You wake up, you got a scratchy throat, you're all congested, you got a runny nose, you got a cough, whatever, and you weigh your options like you tough it out, get sick, take time off work, Try to get a doctor's appointment sometime in the next few months. Wait two hours at urgent care and sit in a room full of six sick folks. Or you open your medical emergency kit. You match your symptoms to the doctor-recommended prescription. And you start on the right meds right away. 
these medical emergency kits, not a first aid kit, all right? It comes with doctor-prescribed meds to treat over 39 medical issues. So, on hand, strong antibiotics for infections of all types. Plus, a doctor's easy guide so you know exactly what to take and when. No waiting to see the doctor. No waiting at the pharmacy. It's all in there. Every home should have at least one medical emergency kit. Order yours online in minutes. Your kit will be rushed to your door. Get 15% off at twc.health slash meat eater, but you got to use the promo code meat eater. That's promo code meat eater, okay, at twc.health slash meat eater. Spring is a great time to do something with your family. Do some spring cleaning, which I kind of started today outside. Planning outdoor activities, which I'm always doing. Taking a little trip to Hawaii with your kids for spring break, which I just did, which was great. You know what else you can do for your family this spring? You can shop for life insurance with Policy Genius. Make that part of your financial planning for the year. I've said it before a thousand times. I'll say it again. When my wife and I, when we started having kids, we got serious about life insurance. And man, I felt so much better after we did. With Policy Genius, you can find life insurance policies that start at just 292 bucks per year for a million dollars of coverage. Some options offer same-day approval and avoid unnecessary medical exams. Even if you already have a life insurance policy through work, it may not offer enough protection for your family's needs, and it may not follow you if you leave your job. So save time and money and provide your family with a financial safety net using Policy Genius. Head to policygenius.com. Or click the link in the description to get your free life insurance quotes and see how much you could save. It's policygenius.com. You just mentioned the difference between an elk herd that might be roaming around freely and an elk herd that might be contained in a fence on an in one individual's mm-hmm. private property. Explain to me the, the regulatory difference. Let's leave elk aside and let's just talk about deer or something else. How does the state view those two things differently? Where free-ranging deer um, that are, you know, could be on county land, they could be on an individual's private farm, they're moving around, the state, you know, the people own them. And then you have deer herds that are privately held and held in to a specific landowner's property by a fence. Does the state have to treat those two different deer populations differently? Or is your view that it's, it's all deer and it all falls under the same regulatory structure. All, all deer belong to the people of Texas. The public trust doctrine in this notion of public ownership of wildlife prevails. Um, and there's a long history of that, uh, not just in our state, but all across the country. That's the foundation for the North American model. Um, and that's what we subscribe to. And certainly, legally and um, philosophically, you know, we believe that all deer, irrespective of whether they live behind a low fence or a high fence or in a captive game form or out, you know, in a completely free range environment, those deer still belong to the people of Texas. And so, so in a high fence atmosphere, even where you bring in, you might bring in and like introduce for genetic purposes, introduce new deer, buy deer, move them around, that still has to be managed according to rules set by the state. Yes. And the reason for that is that is that interface between, 
you know, free range populations of deer and captive populations of deer, the release of captive bred deer into, you know, high fenced ranches or what are called release sites, there's still ample opportunity for those deer to connect and, and, and have connections. And of course, we all know fences are, are, are anything but infallible. You yeah, know, it's yeah. like blow out, a water gap goes down, a tree falls on them, you know, a bull runs through uh, a, a fence, um, whatever the group of hogs runs under them, whatever. So, you know, by, by no means are those impenetrable. So uh, a high fence operation. In Texas, there's still an opening day. Yeah, there's still a there's still an opening day of, of 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 deer season, and you know that's one of those great traditions, rites of passage, and 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 I wouldn't think of all high fence properties as somehow radically different than all low fence properties either. Um, you know, because because of the scale. Yeah, the scale of them. That's a, that's a great point, and don't think and 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 you know, our listeners shouldn't think that because somebody has a, a high fence around their ranch that they're involved in the breeding of deer, the captive breeding of, of deer. That's 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 not necessarily the case. I mean, we have 250,000 landowners in our state and about 1,000 deer breeders. But, you know, there are lots of high-fenced ranches, but the scale of them may be very vast. Um, and, and so you still have the same kind of opportunities for – uh, you know, fair chase and, 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 and hunting, however you choose to, to hunt, there may be a high fence around, you know, some or all of those property. And that, that fence may be, uh, more or less, uh, uh, effective at keeping deer in or out. Um, and so, you know, folks tend to think about Texas, you know, in that way and have this very kind of negative or pejorative perspective on, 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 on high fences if you come from states in which that's not so commonplace. What we really focus on is the management behind the fence. What are okay. they doing from a habitat management perspective? How are they managing it to promote habitat diversity? How are they managing the game there, the non-game, the unique species? And so the issue is more that management and stewardship, not so much the height of the fence. Can you explain some of the some of the governance around um, exotics and movement of exotics? Like, like I'm assuming I couldn't, let's say I somehow got my hands on a, a truckload of jaguars. I'm assuming I can't just turn the jaguars loose. Yeah, no. So, so what is okay and what's not okay? Yeah, no. So it, those kind of wild, dangerous animals, obvious legal prohibitions on first being able to have one in captivity at all, much less release one into the into the wild, yeah. you know, inevitably after some hurricane or storm um, in some area, you know, we may get a call about somebody that had a lion that nobody knew about and you know obviously there's a lot of a lot of concern about that for obvious reasons but but you guys don't, you, but you we, guys don't have a list of the world's animals with, <laughs> we, with a check or an x next to it we, right? we don't yeah. and, and parks and wildlife doesn't regulate exotics um okay. you know that's not that's not what we do at least on the animal side we have some overlap there on aquatic exotic plants that we're we're involved in but that's a whole different different area of management and stewardship and control but from an exotic animal perspective that is managed through the state's animal health commission okay um, and so different regulatory structure and and entity you know there's certainly landowners all across texas that have got interest in exotic game that's very popular fallow deer axis deer black buck antelope 
uh, all day out or, you know, many, many free range uh, in, environments now. Um, and so a lot of folks are interested in that from a wildlife and a hunting perspective. It's, it, it's pretty popular in our state, but we don't have any regulatory authority. You got to have a hunting license to, to hunt them. Um, but what about situations where that stuff winds up impacting the things that you do have purview over? Yeah. Great, great question. So, so most of our wildlife work in Texas, as we talked about earlier, is on private lands. It's, it's in concert with private landowners. It's voluntary. It's collaborative. Put this in perspective. You know, we provide technical assistance on wildlife management to landowners all over the state. We have roughly 30 million plus acres under a department-approved wildlife management plan. And that's about 20% of the state. So that's kind of evidence of that and that interest. You know, the first thing our biologists are going to do with their landowner partners are, what are your goals? What are your interests? And so, you know, for landowners that are interested in both exotics and native game, you know, we want to respect that. We're obviously much more interested in the native game, and that's what we're going to work to help promote and really spend most of our time on. Um, and, you know, we've encouraged them to make sure that those numbers of exotics are managed in such a way that it doesn't have an adverse impact on the on the native game and particularly the, the, the native habitat. Um, but, again, we want to be very sensitive to the goals of the individual landowner. So if a landowner is very interested in, you know, his or her axis deer on their property or their black buck antelope, um, to the extent that can be incorporated into a wildlife management plan, because the landowners are going to be managing for that anyway. Yeah. Um, and they're going to hunt them, they're going to enjoy them, they're going to utilize them. To the extent that all that can be balanced, that's just something that our biologists have to work through. But we're focused on the native game. That's our area of, of emphasis. But then if someone owns, an, if someone has a property, they have a private property, and they own an exotic on the private property, if that exotic animal escapes... They no longer own that animal, no. correct? No, you'd have to get you know permission from a neighbor to go and try to recapture that that animal. That 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 ownership doesn't extend like a loose cow yeah. or a loose horse. So there's some some differences there. You know, if I had that you know herd of of of, of axis deer and it went over to your ranch, you can't and come yell at me for hunting it. No, 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 or come over and fly over and trap them and bring them back um, yeah. um you'd have the ability to file you know trespassing charges against me so i'd have to have your permission yeah but i would not be able to go run down and sell your cattle no no absolutely not yeah have there been cases in texas where you guys have had to where there's been an introduction of an exotic where you had to go and sort of catch it and stop it successfully or is the nature of the landscape here such that when things get out they're just kind of out you know more of the latter than the former when we're thinking about um wildlife and particularly large ungulates you know again you know kind of deer and elk like animals that we hunt you, know, you got to remember that this kind of history of landowners bringing in exotic game for sport and also for wildlife conservation, you know, helping to, you know, bring back populations of scimitar horned orange. Oh, that's, or yeah, it's interesting where oftentimes it's been that Texas will have more of some species than it does in its native yeah, range. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Um, and it's a, it helps prevent genetic extinction. That, exactly, yeah. exactly. Um, 
but that's been going on since the 30s and 40s and 50s. So there's a long history. So, you know, you would say, you know, take your most most well-known and populist exotic game animals, Axis or Fallow or Sica or Blackbuck or Audad, you know, they've really naturalized. Um, they're not native, but they've naturalized. So they're here to stay. Um, where today what we would see is perhaps there is a, a, a really invasive or exotic uh, fish or a snake um, or a plant that our biologists are made aware of in a localized area, more likely the result of somebody tired of having something as a pet. Yeah. And they turn it loose in a city park or a county park. We're going to find it and we're going to kill it. Um, you know, and that's the ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. Um, cause just as you said, you want to jump on that and stop it from being a problem. Um, and you don't have to, to, to look any further to something like, you know, zebra mussels um, or giant salvinia and water hyacinth, you know, exotic plants. Yeah, like but, highly deleterious exotics. That's yeah. right. Yeah, yeah, they just take off. So we find an outbreak like that in a lake. We're going to go hammer it with, uh, with herbicide to um, see what we can do to help kill those plants to keep it from getting established. We don't see that so much in terms of big animals, but, you know, occasionally our, our, our biologists will get a call about, again, a, a, a snake um, or, you know, something or a fish that's yeah. localized that we can find and, and, and try to deal with that problem before it spreads. What is your perspective on concerns about um, with, with chronic wasting disease? Significant. I, you know, when you look at deer and deer hunting um, in Texas and the magnitude of that, just how important it is uh -huh. um, from, you know, not just the million, 100,000 hunters that we have in Texas, but um, how important that is to real estate values in our state. I mean, basically rural land values are in that's those. A real, that's a good point I never thought of, man. Yes. Because the, huge. The owning deer properties. You bet. It's huge. To it's, the extent that people would be become obviously less interested. Yes. That, you know? Yeah. No, they'd be very concerned about it. Um, you know, just how important hunting is to our rural communities around the state from a tourism perspective and an economic development. I mean, you go to these little towns in the central part of the state, the opening weekend, a deer season and those cafes and motels and the hardware stores and the gas stations are packed to the gills with people in camouflage. And so that's real money um, that that's out of county money and it makes an impact locally. And so And you guys have had a couple positives now, right? We we have. So we've got we've got kind of three nodes of CWD in our, our state. It's by no means pervasive. Um, the first node is out right near the New Mexico border, just east of El Paso in a little mountain range called the Waco mountains, which is pretty isolated, and we found it there in mule deer. Then we found it up um, in the panhandle, the northern part of our state, very close to the New Mexico line. Um, again, we think with free-range animals coming over from New Mexico, but we found it in mule deer. We found it in a couple of elk. We found it in a couple of whitetail. And then down in central Texas, kind of the heart of some of the most populous deer country, um, we found chronic wasting disease in four pretty large captive breeding operations. And uh, and so we've been working very actively to help deal with that. Um, what, are the, what are the biggest limitations right now on, presumably you can't do everything you wish you could do. Sure. What, what's the limitation on, on fr from your perspective on, on, on trying to slow it, 
get rid of it? I mean, can you? You can't get rid of it. I mean, that's so you the, think like Texas will not go back to being free of no, CWD? No, I don't. No. I don't. I don't think we. I don't think we will. But that yeah. doesn't mean we're complacent about it and we somehow lay behind the log and say, "Hey, we've got it in these three isolated areas, so we're not going to worry about it everywhere else." Absolutely to the contrary. So. Our strategy is focused on three goals. Um, you know, first, we want to minimize the impacts of CWD to all of our deer populations, whether it's free range or captive. Um, secondly, we want to make sure that we minimize the impact from CWD to um, hunting and hunting-based economies, and that includes real estate values, rural communities, tourism, hunter expenditures, all that. And then last but not least is we want to make sure that our management actions are done in such a way that we maintain the trust and confidence of our hunters and our private landowners. Absolutely critical. So those are the three tenets of our efforts. And then from a, from a strategy perspective, we're focused on two things. First is early detection. So if it's out there, we want to find it so that all of a sudden, you know, we can get mandatory testing in place. We can get carcass movement restrictions in place. We can get prohibitions on moving live deer into and out of those pl- those, okay. those areas in place. So early, so very active from a surveillance perspective. Our biologists are spending a lot of time, you know, collecting brain samples um, throughout the year, but particularly during hunting season. We've stratified the state um, according to kind of statistical grids to, to, to sample at levels that gives us, you know, varying level of confidence or degrees of confidence that we'd find it dependent on the sample size. A lot of, a lot of effort on the early detection and the sampling, and then it becomes a containment issue. Um, um, I'm not aware of any situation um, in any kind of a free-range environment in which anybody has really gotten rid of it. So yeah. it gets at how do you arrest the spread of it? And the two biggest threats to that, of course, are large aggregations of animals, right? And then the movement of an animal from an infected area to another area. You know, they move on a trailer or whatever, some artificial movement of, 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 of deer. So, you know, working to kind of man, manage densities in those areas and then also make sure that we don't have movement of deer into or out of areas that we know have, have CWD. Again, it's a big issue for our, our state just because deer hunting, deer management, enjoyment of rural land is so tied to the health and enjoyment of deer populations in our state that we have got to take an aggressive strategy in dealing with it. Thankfully, we have it in three isolated areas, and that's how we want to keep it. Do you feel that you've gotten adequate federal support? On working with CW, like coordination and support, or are all the states just kind of duking it out on their own? Well, and I think that's a real issue um, that's out there. You know, historically, we had financial support through USDA APHIS to help with um, monitoring um, the surveillance because we're we're spending very, very conservatively, you know, let's say a million and a half dollars a year um, on just the CWD surveillance. So remember, that's time that that biologists also could be spending working with landowners on habitat management, yeah. wildlife management, you know, working on game, non-game, whatever, whatever other priorities that, that we have out there. So there's a real opportunity cost of time. Historically, we did have some federal funding to, to help with that. Now, as I understand it, there is proposed funding this year in the uh, House Appropriations Bill um, for the Department of Agriculture 
to help um, ensure that there's going to be some funding made available to the states to help support that that surveillance. That would be helpful. Undoubtedly, there is a need for greater coordination across our country with respect to how do we deal with it. And, you know, as I look at that, um, I would say, you know, one, I mean, states have the jurisdictional authority over deer and elk, um, largely. There's some exceptions to that, but but mostly. And, and we need to, re- to respect those jurisdictional boundaries, and states need to be able to choose how to respond to things, just depending on what the cultural and political currents are of the state. Those are just realities that we have to deal with in wildlife politics, as you, as you said. But we could benefit from, um, from additional federal funding coming to the states to help support adaptive management, more surveillance, et cetera. I think we could also benefit from a more coordinated, comprehensive look at targeted research, particularly testing and evaluating these adaptive management strategies that states are implementing, kind of independent of one another. But, you know, it's not all done in some kind of a rigorous experimental design type type setting. So some targeted research to test that, and it needs to be over time, right? It needs to be longitudinal. You can't just study this kind of an issue for two years yeah, and a yeah. traditional master's student and say, hey, we're done. You need to commit to that over a, over a much longer period of time. Um, we also see capacity issues in uh, in testing labs for CWD. And so, you know, we have uh, the, the Texas A&M, the, the Veterinary Medical Diagnostic Lab does a fabulous job. They're really good partners of ours on um, their, their, their testing work as CWD samples, whether that's from, you know, free range uh, uh, populations or from captive yeah. bred facilities. They really work hard at that, but capacity is constrained. So there's a lag in testing those animals. So hunter kills a deer. Um, it's in an area in which it's a mandatory testing area. And, you know, if they have to wait six weeks for that sample to come back to no fault of, 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 of our lab, it's just a capacity issue. It'd be nice if we could accelerate that with additional capacity. Last thing that I think that could probably get some help on federally, um, is work on a more coordinated, consistent message for hunters to help explain CWD, why it is, why it matters, and what they can do to help address it. Um, if, find that there's still a lot of ignorance out there about the disease, a lack of awareness, um, hunters that may be unwittingly contributing to the spread of it through the movement of infected carcass parts. And sure, yeah. So, and, know, and there's just some just distrust. And some distrust yeah. of, of, of government, yeah. right? Meaning um, that, that, people are, that people are using it as a sort of proxy. Yeah, or fear-mongering, yeah. right? I mean, I you know, you hear that too. It's, it's a fear-mongering issue. It's, um, you have more deer, uh, uh, killed by cars than you do by CWD. How many times have you heard that argument? And so it affects such a relatively small number of animals across the country or a particular state in some cases that why are you so concerned about it? Well, you know, it's a brain disease. Uh, it's always fatal, fatal. It's incurable. You don't need to comment on this, but it's, and maybe I'm even wrong about my assumption but it would seem that the livestock industry would be very interested in CWD. Keenly interested. Very Because we, like, as a hunter and a person that eats a hell of a lot of deer meat, I'm concerned about the 
human health considerations. But I mean, it would be catastrophic to the cattle industry should that disease jump. A species barrier. A species barrier. Yeah. And, and, and all of a sudden we had like, like the equivalent of mad cow disease. Yeah, a BSE type situation. Well, yeah. you know, the thing. I, and again, you don't, need to, you don't need to get into that, but it's just something I, I puzzle over that, that you just don't, I may, and maybe it's out there and I'm not privy to it. You just don't, you don't hear that industry talk about, wow, what is this? Let's get a grip on this. We do in Texas. You do? Yeah. yeah. Texas and Southwestern Cattle Raisers, um, you know, their members are terrific partners with the department. Many of them are very actively involved in wildlife management on their ranches. And, you know, deer is the proverbial, you know, goose that laid the golden egg. Um, and so they're actively involved, very knowledgeable about this. And they do compare the very strict testing requirements and food safety protocols on on livestock and meat um, and meat-related products because of that public safety and the making sure that the consumers are comfortable with the safety of the meat that they're eating. Very, very focused on that from a market perspective. Yeah. So they absolutely make that parallel in terms of advocating for you know, more testing and appropriate testing in deer populations, you know, if CWD is indeed a, a, a problem. So, yeah, you'd be um, surprised at the awareness or linkage. Perhaps it's not verbalized as much or perhaps it's not talked about as much in, in all states, but certainly the cattle raisers in Texas have been very, very strong partners with us in our efforts to help raise awareness um, and deal with this, this, this issue in Texas. So uh, last thing for you. What are the biggest challenges and opportunities you see in your position? And I'm, I'm guessing that you would probably put CWD among the biggest or yeah, not the biggest? Uh, well, I mean, I think, you know, CWD is one of those um, emerging wildlife-related challenges, you know, that, that, that transcends boundaries. You know, you think about all these different vectors and portals and areas of commerce into, into Texas. And so, you know, whether it's, you know, white nose syndrome and bats or CWD and in, in deer, or some rare fungal disease and amphibians or the introduction of, you know, exotic and invasive plants that proliferate and take over our lakes like a bad Alfred Hitchcock movie. You know, those Sounds issues like are revelations. Those are, those are real. And I, you know, we take a lot of pride in in our native plant and animal communities. I mean, we 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 want to keep it that way. That 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 native wildlife heritage, that outdoor heritage, that diversity of habitats that we talked about, we want to keep those native and healthy. Um, and so there are challenges for us. And I, so I don't want to play let's pretend. I mean, we've got a big growing state. 28 million people and growing, most of them very detached from the kind of things that we love, that in and of itself. You feel that that's true? Yeah. 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 Now, now, interestingly, I think that most attitudinal surveys, that irrespective of whether or not somebody is urban or rural, old or young, doesn't matter what the demographic stratifier is, that today people still have some kind of desire to see wildlife conserved and protected. You know, there's still, there's still positive sentiments. I think what we all 
worry about, and appropriately, is that increasing generational detachment. And what does that mean? Will that attenuate? Will it subside? Will it go away? What does that mean for the future of, you know, hunting and angling and, and, and responsible and ethical fisheries and wildlife management? Will we have the support from a populace that, you know, doesn't hunt and fish and so therefore doesn't, you know, pay into the pay into the system? Will they see the benefits of of that? So that population issue competition for water of course is big fragmentation of ranches you know it's harder to keep family ranches together for all kinds of reasons so we see them getting smaller and more fragmented and and that inevitably leads to habitat loss yeah Yeah. and that leads to habitat loss so um there there are no shortage of challenges uh you know we could we could write war and peace uh on that particular topic all of those are opportunities as well you know, how do we better connect with um, an urban-based audience that is that is detached from the outdoors? How do we use technology, not as our enemy, but um, as our portal to connect people to the outdoors and get them interested to come to places? How do we invest in more, you know, parks in public areas that are close to where people are so that they have easy access? How do we create more mentor programs um how do we how do we help shape educational programs in the schools through all ages to make sure that people are getting a proper grounding in natural resources related literacy um you know speaks to kind of this r3 effort that's going on nationally where um you know i think for for the fishing side of thing we've got a real opportunity to move the move the needle um, certainly getting people into the outdoors to enjoy wildlife. Maybe they're not going to be hunters, but we want them to appreciate hunters. We want them to appreciate hunting. We want them to appreciate wildlife management, understand the science behind it, the reasons behind it, and and, and why that can help all of the species of interest that we're charged with with managing. So um, the challenges, again, are our opportunities as, 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 as well. And I think what's the, the overriding concern for all of us, irrespective of where we work, is trying to lead our home ground better than we found it yeah our buddy doug dern yeah i don't know where he stole it but maybe he made it up no he stole it it's not ours it's our turn our turn yeah <laughs> yeah yeah no do, you any, uh, do you got any last final thoughts no i mean i we've covered the waterfront uh yeah. pretty well <laughs> was it just uh, nothing you were uh dying to wedge in there that we didn't get to <laughs> no gosh we have we've uh i've, I've I'm trying to think if there's anything we didn't cover that. Let uh, me hear you, let me hear you with my yeah, concluder, yeah. and then you can do one if you got one. Yeah. And Giannis is going to go. I mentioned <laughs> Shane Mahoney earlier in the same conversation where we talked about the uh, the model, you know, North the, the model. complex model. Yeah. Uh, he was talking about that same thing. You just brought up it was funny. You mentioned technology and in, in, in people's engagement with the natural world, and he made a point that. He was saying guys like him and his generation, and it's true of me, I'm 45, and this is the same thing with me. We grew up in a world that like doesn't exist. And he like talks about, you know, riding off on your bike with your 22, right? Doesn't happen. And it's like, it, it's, he says so many people in, in his age, and again, I'm going to include myself in it, are, are thinking like, for, for people to engage with the natural world, we need to recapture and deliver to them this child, this like idyllic childhood that we had growing up out in the rural parts of America where you took off in the morning with your 22 and fishing rod and came home after dark. And he's like, that's the mind frame and how we're going to re-engage people with nature. 
um, and the technology's bad. And he says, like, that approach is not going to work. I couldn't we agree are, more. We are yeah. not going to we are not going to bring that back and make that a scalable model for wildlife engagement. And you're gonna have to find a way to make the natural world, make nature relevant in the way that people can understand and they're gonna relate to how they do. And I, he says and I feel that that will happen and technology, if it's going to happen, technology and an embracing of technology will be part of that. Amen. You will not get people, to, you will not get people to leave it behind. I, I couldn't agree more with that yeah. approach. It's uh, the, the, the other is just so wildly uh, idealistic. We'll never go back to that. There are people place. who pull it off. Um, we, you know, we, very localized, yeah, for very sure. localized. But in, if in, in, in national terms, Fair. when you talk about like an ur- increasingly urbanized environment, where we live. if it's like if we're if we're going to make it this binary thing, you you have to love nature and hate technology, and that's the only way we're going to win. You'll never win that. You know that 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 if if that was a battle, which I don't think it it, yeah. it ever was, by the way. Although people love to frame that, and a lot of it had to do with people extrapolating, making their own inferences from you know some of the findings that drove the whole uh, you know last child in the woods movement, children and nature related movement. But I think most folks who are given this issue any real thought have come to the same conclusion: is Technology is here. It's here to stay. It's growing, and it's increasing part of and our and kids. And you can't make kids choose. And, and you can't make kids choose. So meet them where they're at yeah. and let them experience. It's like taking my – I've got some young cousins that are, you know, 11, 12, 13. And, yeah, I'm kind of mildly annoyed by the fact that, <laughs> you know, we're sitting out there, um, you know, in a ground blind or something. And, you know, they want to post – everything on Snapchat and Instagram and tell the story, you know, electronically and their smartphones are going 90 to nothing. But you know what? They seem to have a ball. So who is it of me to tell them, no, I want you to enjoy it my way. You can't do it your way. Yeah. You got to enjoy it my way. You catch me in the right mood. I say all that yeah, stuff. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I just don't think it works. I'll leave you with this story. 15 years ago, I got a buddy that, um, of mine that, um, ranches out in far West Texas, sprawling ranch gets left alone by his, his wife, um, with his two young daughters. And, um, I think they were four and five. She leaves to, um, going to town to see parents or something for the, for the weekend. And so he's doing parent duty at the ranch. He said he watched his two daughters, um, one afternoon spend their entire afternoon within about a five foot radius of a big oak tree in their front yard. And it dawned on him at the time that, Hey, you don't need to take people to some big wilderness area. Yeah. We'd all love to know that they're there. Um, but people can find nature anywhere. They can find it at an undeveloped city block, a lot, a park, a little green belt, you know, sitting under a tree, looking at your office building, and there's a peregrine falcon, you know, preying on a pigeon, you know, in downtown Chicago. Um, it's not that we don't want to get people out into these wild places. We do but let's help them discover nature and the outdoors where they are. And yeah. I thought it was interesting for that friend to have that revelation 
about, you know, the population as a whole from watching his two ranch-raised girls um, on a big sprawling ranch because of their interaction with one tree in their front yard and how just connected they were. Sure. That thing's pretty cool. Yeah. I had a uh, interviewer recently asked me, like, where's the best place to hunt deer? I said, as close to your house as possible. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, no doubt, no doubt. Yanni, you got any? I know we're short on time. I'll, I'll leave it at this. That was a good story to finish on. Good. Uh, yeah, good. Thank, you, thank you very much for joining us. Thanks. For, I'm sure you're extremely busy, so thanks for giving us so much of your time. Delighted to be here. Thank yeah. you for having me. Tell them, Yanni, starsinthesky.film.com, man. Tell them. Yeah, you guys need to uh, go over to starsinthesky.film.com and buy a copy of it. And I was just thinking that you ought to buy a second copy to give. I don't know how that works. You get a link and you can give it to somebody, but you should buy it for a non-hunter. Who's uneasy with hunting. That's right, because this is it's a very good... Uh, Deep dive into hunting, explores all the different realms of hunting that we all know so well and are so easy for us to talk about and understand. But uh, Steve does a really good job in the documentary of sort of, you know, opening it up to and in a conversation where people that are non-endemic outside of our little hunting bubble can understand all these topics that we deal with and uh, grapple with all the time. Um, you'll enjoy it, but I also feel like if you're somebody that wants to promote hunting and make hunting cool again, you should uh, pass it along to some folks. Yeah, Yanni worked on the movie. Yeah. Had and, a good time working on it. And uh, Giannis is the uh, he's the most honest man in show business. Is that right? And he's telling you to go watch it. Oh, yeah, <laughs> I know. I know for a fact. Thank you, guys. Starsinthesky.com, where you can find our new documentary, um, available for streaming and download purchase. Hey, I'm excited to share our newest sponsor here on the Meat Eater Podcast, which is Poncho Outdoors. The reason I'm excited is I buy their shirts anyways. Dude, they make some good shirts. And they even have an option where if you're like a skinny dude, you can click like the skinny dude thing. It's great. Based in Austin, Texas, Poncho is committed to crafting the world's best outdoor shirts for men. Poncho is only sold on their own website. So head over to ponchooutdoors.com, use code MEATEATER for a free hat or T-shirt with any purchase of a shirt. Poncho offers free shipping and returns, so you can try them out risk-free. I'm sure a lot of you guys remember the old ceremonial hunting tradition of eating the heart out of the first animal you kill. Meat from those organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. You can get those same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil. Find out more at heartandsoil.co. And remember, use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase.